And now, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics with Dr. Richard Miller. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your health and well-being, provoke thought, expand consciousness, and promote community. Today, we are addressing the topics of war, terrorism, and torture, the relationships amongst them, and the extent to which, if any, it is in the interests of the American public to use the expertise of professional psychologists in these human expressions of protection and domination. It is my distinct privilege and pleasure to have with us today two men who have dedicated a significant portion of their lives and their professional careers to the study of ethics. Dr. Stephen Benke, who received his Doctor of Jurisprudence from Yale Law School and his PhD in Clinical Psychology from the University of Michigan, is with us today, as is Dr. Stephen Reisner, Psychological Ethics Advisor to Physicians for Human Rights. He's also a founding member of the Coalition for an Ethical Psychology. We're going to be talking about war, terrorism, and torture, so stand by. Stephen Benke, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Are you with us? Uh, I am here. It's a pleasure to be here. Steve Benke was made chief psychologist at the Day Hospital Unit at Massachusetts Mental Health Center, a position he held until 1998 when he was named a faculty fellow at Harvard University's program in ethics and the professions. After completing this fellowship, Dr. Benke directed a program in research integrity in the Division of Medical Ethics at Harvard in 19... Uh, November 2000, Dr. Benke assumed the position of Director of Ethics of the American Psychological Association. He can correct me if I'm off here. I think that's the largest mental health organization on the planet. I think it's 150,000-odd members of the American Psychological Association. Our other guest, Dr. Stephen Reisner, as I said before, is a psychological ethics advisor to Physicians for Human Rights. He's a founding member of the Coalition for an Ethical Psychology adjunct professor for the program in clinical psychology and senior advisor at the International Trauma Studies Program at Columbia University. He's also assistant professor of clinical psychology at the New York University Medical School. Outstanding credentials, both of you, and thank you for being with us today. Our topic today is to look at terrorism, war, and torture. War. War is, a, is an activity, it's a conflict that perceives the need to either psychologically or materially dominate the other participant. Amongst humans, the perceived need for domination often arises from the belief that either an ideology uh, or a belief is so incompatible or a resource is so scarce that one needs to dominate another group. Terror, terror is, is, is also a political or a psychic violence. They're usually carried out in such a way as to maximize the severity and length of the psychological impact. So again, we hear in, in, in defin defining war, both the physical and the psychological, in terrorism, we hear it's both physical and psychological. And then we come to the G Geneva Convention, uh, a, a definition of torture, and they define it as an act by which severe pain or suffering, physical or mental, is intentionally inflicted on a person. In this case, for obtaining information or, or, a, or a confession. But in all three cases, terrorism, war, and torture, it's to gain submission. Gentlemen, how do you see these three? Do you see them as different? Do you see them as all part of one? Should we differentiate 
Dr. Stephen Benke, let me hear from you first, please. Um, Richard, that, that's a, it, it's a rather broad question that you're asking. Yes. Um, and I think that, uh, I, I think that I share a wish with all of your listeners, and that is, uh, we all want to end war. We want to see, uh, uh, all wars end. That is our hope. That's our desire. Um, and uh, uh, we want to end the dominance of uh, any one group over another group. I suppose the question I would ask um, as a psychologist is, uh, is aggression and is war uh, part of uh, the nature of humankind. And I think that I, uh, a part of me would certainly like the answer uh, to that question to be no, because that would give me a certain hope. Uh, but uh, I do wonder, as we look um, at the nature of humanity uh, as scientists, uh, whether the answer to that question that uh, war may be an inherent part of who we are. So I would say that uh, I hope the answer to that is no, because that gives me the hope um, uh, that we might find a way to end war. Um, but uh, war has been with us uh, uh, for a very long time. Uh, so uh, as, uh, uh, as a scientist, I raise, I raise that question. Stephen Reisner, Stephen Benke, has approached this from the larger picture, starting with war, because one could, could view terrorism and torture as outgrowths or expressions within war. What is your opinion? To, is, is war part of the human condition? Well, um, this has been a discussion that psychologists have had since, I think, the beginning of psychology. Uh, Freud and Einstein had a famous uh, interchange over the question of why war and was war an innate uh, human expression of aggression, or was it the consequence of certain conditions? And uh, the conclusions drawn to some extent was that there is an innate tendency to power and domination, which leads to the psychological question of uh, if there is an innate tendency to power and domination, how do we as uh, civilized human beings uh, live with one another and control that or overcome it. And one of the ways that we try to do that is through, of course, systems of laws. And as professional psychologists, we try to do that through systems of ethics. Um, over hundreds of years, there have been codified ways that are considered the appropriate or higher uh, level uh, modes for human beings to deal with one another, given our proclivity to want to dominate and to have power. That's why we have the Geneva Conventions. That's why we have codes of ethics for the professions. That's why we have codes of conduct for, for wars. Um, and I think that is what brings us to the topic for today, the topic of um, torture and uh, whether it's uh, ever justified and whether there's a role for health professionals in what the role of health professionals is in war, uh, terror, or or torture. Uh, I think that we've we've collected some wisdom over the over the centuries, and we've learned what to do and what not to do. And I hope that we'll get a chance to discuss some of that on today's show, Richard. And let me say that I I, I think that was very well said um, uh, by Stephen Reisner. And there is uh, many laws. Uh, that govern human behavior, but there is also uh, a law of war uh, that governs how wars are conducted. That may seem ironic to uh, to many listeners, but uh, the laws of war are for precisely uh, the reasons that uh, Stephen articulated. That is to set rules governing governing uh, how uh, aggression is expressed. But who, gentlemen, who are these rules for? Are these rules actually for the men in the field or are these rules for the leaders sitting back in the comfort of their offices and their homes what's the reality here 
Well, uh, that, uh, Richard, I think you've started this off with uh, two of the central questions that uh, we want to be we want to be looking at. Uh, the rules that govern, govern uh, the behavior, and uh, Stephen mentioned um, the, uh, the Geneva Convention, certainly they are central to our thinking, but they are not, and let's be very clear about this, they are not simply for the people sitting back uh, a distance from the armed conflict. Those are for the people uh, who are likewise engaged in armed conflicts, and uh, uh, as we read the text uh, of the Geneva Conventions, they are very clear about that. Well, the, the texts are clear about that, but when I try to, to translate that to an understanding for the average person, it becomes very difficult for me. It becomes difficult for me to understand how a, a piece of paper can say that we are not to inflict certain levels of pain and suffering on a person that we have in a room, which we might call a microcosm, but we could encounter that same person out in the field or in a foxhole and stick a knife in their eye. How is the average soldier supposed to make sense of this? How is the average soldier supposed to make sense when, when he's told you can maim someone in this room, namely a, called a battlefield or out there, but if you should in, in, capture him and now you have him in a, in a bomb shelter or in some burnt-out building, you're not allowed to do something to him then. Well, how do you, as psychologists and, and, and men of ethics, I mean, how, what's your understanding of how the average person is supposed to relate to that? Well, I think this is why we try to discuss ethics and we try to discuss laws and we try to discuss the, the uh, uh, collected wisdom of the ages in cool times with level heads. And we think about these issues not when we're under fire on the battlefield, not when we're under attack. We think about them during times when we want to know what, the, what our best and highest standard of behavior is, so that when we're under fire, we can appeal to those codes, those time-honored lessons, and follow them so that we don't go by brute violence, by brute aggression, and by emotions and fear. And that's why we have those codes. We want to train those soldiers, not when they're in the foxhole. We want to train them when they are at military school. We want to train them at boot camp in understanding when you're under fire, you can fire back. But when you have somebody in a room with you, you may not cause pain uh, simply uh, for the sake of torture to show your, when, to, for the sake of torturing them to get information. There are, there are uh, principles that are passed down from generations um, that hold for everyone and torture, uh, sexual abuse, uh, violence against people for the, based on their race or color. These are lessons that we've learned um, over decades and over centuries. Um, and that, so we, we try to train people in those and differentiate them. There are, there's a lot of room for disagreement. There's a lot of uh, room to, you know, to try to stop war altogether. But um, we, we try to discuss realistically what are ethical ways of acting in various situations so that when we're in those situations, we don't abandon those uh, categories of ethics and, and, and categories of behavior. Now, I'd like to add something to the discussion, which has to do with health professionals. Well, Stephen? Could, could, I just, could I just emphasize a point that you made that I, I think is so important when you said um, that we make these rules in cool times when people have level heads, that strikes me as absolutely the right message, that we don't want to be writing the rules when people are in the heat of battle. I think one could argue that that is the worst time to be trying to be clear about what the rules should be. So as I heard you, the two things you said is we want to write the rules, uh, again, your phrase, in cool times with level heads, and then we want to train people in what those rules are so that by the time they hit the heat of battle, those rules are well ingrained uh, uh, in their behavior. I think
think that uh, I think that message is exactly uh, the right message. Gentlemen, I, I, I need your help here. Uh, you're professional ethicists. I've studied ethics, but I'm far from a professional. I, I need help to understand this. I, I don't understand this notion of coolly making the rules when we're not in the heat of battle. And well, then, when, well, let me just go on kindly. And then we annihilate an entire city as both an expression of war and an expression of dominance and as a method of psychologically terrorizing the entire other population in hope that they will submit. Well, I don't get the connection between the coolness of making rules and then demonstrating to all these people that you've taught these rules to a willingness to take out a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, or a hundred thousand people all at once. Well, I mean, you're asking the most challenging questions of, uh, of of the history of ethics, and I don't know that we'll solve them. I think what I could say is that hopefully we learn from them for the future. For example, we learned in the Second World War uh, about. Uh, Genocide, and we learned about uh, mass destruction of civilian populations in war. And we learned, and, and since the Second World War, we have tried to put together codes of conduct that prohibit, uh, un, you know, uh, civilian death, that prohibit genocide, and that prohibit uh, torture, and that prohibit things like research on prisoners. So we, it has been an imperfect and continues to be an imperfect process. But the idea is that afterwards, when we look back with shame on what human beings have done to one another, that we try to codify through government, through international bodies, through religious uh, precepts, we try to codify what is appropriate behavior, what is our ideals for one another, and, and how do we inculcate them, how do we train people to behave in that way. So yes, we're trying to learn those lessons, and I think that one of the issues on, for today's program is what has happened to the United States in the last 10 years, where we have lost those lessons, forgotten the time-honored lessons on torture, and the United States has become one of the nations that commits torture. And unfortunately, the reason you have the two of us on the show is because psychologists have played a key and vital role in restoring torture to the vocabulary of war. Is, you're saying that uh, as if the, the, uh, the psychologists in some way um, have been misused, are you suggesting, by the American public? I'm saying not by the American public. I think that psychologists have been used. I, I, we know. That's not, not my thought. We know that psychologists were used during the Bush administration uh, in the early stages uh, of what they called the global war on terror to create a program of torture that was used by the CIA and the military in the treatment of detainees held in held by our forces and unfortunately I'm, I'm ashamed to say this psychologists were involved directly in creating the program in uh, overseeing its implementation and in some cases in doing the abusive techniques themselves and uh, that is why I have devoted a portion of my a big portion of my career to trying to restore a sense of uh, outrage at our country's policies on torture that have changed and gone back uh, 300 years, and in uh, restoring the, the lessons from World War II, from the Geneva Conventions, from Nuremberg, trying to restore that to our, our national policy and most specifically to our, our uh, policies of professional ethics. Uh, as psychologists, we have a code of professional ethics that also needs to uh, 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 condemn and uh, prohibit any such behavior on the part of psychologists or health professionals. Stephen Reisner, with the deepest respect for your shame 
uh, and your outrage, and, and speaking also as a fellow psychologist, uh, going back 50 years, please explain to me how your shame, how our shame, if I were to share it, is different from the shame that ought to be felt by a person working on a factory line making a tank or a chemist making some chemical that'll be used in warfare or a man making bullets or a man making airplanes or a woman uh, making some other armament. How is it different? You know, we can come at this from different angles, and what I would prefer to do yes. is answer your question directly. How should a psychologist specifically be ashamed? And that has to do with the uh, specific role of a, an ethics of a health professional, going back to Hippocrates. Uh, health professionals actually adhere and are held to a different standard than, uh, than other people, because... We, at, we are trusted with the most vulnerable parts of people's mental and physical health. We are, we are privy to confidential information. We are uh, given attributes of, uh, uh, you know, uh, we, we're, we're given power over the physical and mental health of others. And we do that. We're given that trust because we, uh, we promise, we take an oath um, to do no harm and not to misuse that trust. That's why on the battlefield, medics and ambulances are not supposed to be attacked. They're supposed to be seen as apart from the state power. They're apart from the mechanisms of war. We are held to a higher ethical standard. So when our expertise is used in the service of torture and abuse, that causes me an additional shame to the shame that I think the average person might feel when doing unnecessary harm. So that the, so that the other people that, were, that I mentioned, whether they're working in a factory or in a chemistry laboratory or in a metallurgy and so on and so on, making bombs and planes, they, they don't necessarily sign on for this higher standard. They don't necessarily get licensed by the state for this standard, as you're pointing out. And so it's that the, the differentiation of, of what this profession is about that leads you to have the feelings that you have. Is that correct? That's correct. Dr. Stephen Benke, what, what are your thoughts about this topic? Should, are, are, should we, are psychologists and physicians be held to different standards? And if so, what standards? Uh, absolutely. I, I wholeheartedly agree with everything Stephen Reisner just said. Um, uh, health professionals should absolutely be held to a higher standard. Uh, there should be, and there are, very clear rules uh, prohibiting health um, professionals from using their skills uh, in, the service, in the service of torture and abuse. So I think that uh, uh, both of our messages would uh, very much resonate with one another. And I think that, for me, uh, you know, as you look at the history uh, of the past uh, eight years, um, uh, I do hope uh, that what we see is, in fact, learning. Uh, you know, Steve, uh, Stephen talked about uh, our learning curve since the Second World War. I think, unfortunately, uh, again, I don't know whether this is part of the human condition or not, but we have to relearn some of the lessons uh, that we have learned. And I hope that over uh, the past several years, we have relearned some of those very important lessons. Uh, and uh, certainly central to that message uh, is an absolute prohibition uh, against any uh, uh, health, mental health professional uh, involvement in torture and abuse. Well, I'd like to just add one thing to that. Uh, the question becomes, for me, how we relearn those lessons and how we are reminded of those lessons. And one of the ways is to hold people and institutions accountable for gross violations of the lessons of ethics and law that have been uh, handed down and that we've all agreed upon. Um, and I think that we need to include 
some accountability because we have come out of a dark period, not only a dark period in terms of the nation uh, being involved in torture, but a dark period in terms of uh, psychologists and the profession of psychology being involved in torture. And uh, it is not a period where the American Psychological Association uh, stands out as uh, leading the way in ethical practice. In fact, it's the opposite. The American Psychological Association, starting from the beginning, of the war on terror starting in 2001 has repeatedly joined forces with uh, the CIA, with the Department of Defense in uh, supporting psychologist participation in exactly these kinds of situations and behaviors that now we're saying we should learn the lesson uh, to prohibit. But uh, during the time that it was going on, many of us spoke loudly and clearly to investigate, to hold people accountable, to challenge the APA's ethical principles, to become clearer, and to challenge the APA itself, to condemn what was known at the time as psychologists and health professionals' participation in unethical behavior. And the APA not only didn't condemn what was going on, but continuously found ways to support the continued presence of psychologists in those operations. That's why 13 major human rights and health professional organizations have called for an investigation of the American Psychological Association and their role in these uh, practices in the CIA and the Department of Defense. Well, um, uh, I, I, I think what one really needs to do is to take a very careful look at what the American Psychological Association has done in response to events that have unfolded in the public domain. Now, 25 years ago, 1985 and 1986, APA condemned torture. More recently, APA has condemned torture along with cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment or punishment. APA has said that psychologists have an ethical obligation to report torture or abuse. APA has said that psychologists act in accordance with human rights instruments relevant to their roles, and we've prohibited the, advanced, uh, the enhanced interrogation techniques such as waterboarding, sexual humiliation, and the use of phobias. APA has called on U.S. courts to reject testimony that's gained from torture or abuse, APA has said that psychologists may not act as consultants to interrogations in settings that violate international law, such as the Geneva Convention and the UN Convention Against Torture. We've amended uh, the APA Ethics Code to make clear that there's no defense under the Ethics Code to violating human rights. So I actually think if you take a look at APA's positions on these issues, APA for a quarter of a century has stood very clearly uh, as prohibiting any involvement um, uh, of psychologists, certainly in torture, and using their skills uh, in the service of torture or abuse. And I would actually invite anyone who is interested in APA's position, if you go to the APA, uh, the website, the website of the American Psychological Association, and in the search function, simply put in detainee welfare, you will get a very long list of all the things that APA has done to make our policies uh, on this issue very clear. I would also want to be very clear that the APA Board of Directors has, uh, has said very clearly that any psychologist involvement in torture and abuse cast a shadow across the entire profession. Let's stop right there. We're going to take a short break for station identification. Listeners, the telephone number here is 707-937-5103 should you want to call and ask a question of one of our distinguished guests. We're here at KZYX, 90.7 FM, Philo, KZYZ, 91.5 FM, Willits and Ukiah, and 88.1 FM, Fort Bragg, and streaming on the web at kzyx.org. We're going to be right back for more discussion of psychologists' involvement with what is called torture and whether or not there should be accountability on those who are involved with it, including high-level 
government officials. Stay tuned. We're going to be right back. Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. We're here today with Dr. Stephen Benke, lawyer and clinical psychologist, head of the Ethics Department, the American Psychological Association, and with Dr. Stephen Reisner, psychologist, ethics advisor to Physicians for Human Rights, two very distinguished professionals who have dedicated a significant portion of their lives to the study and practice of ethics. Question, should people who fostered what is called enhanced interrogation be held accountable? I want to play a clip for you right now. This is from our president, a former president and vice president of the United States. Tonight we are a country awakened to danger and called to defend freedom. Our grief has turned to anger and anger to resolution. We also have to work though sort of the, the dark side, if you will. We're going to spend time in the shadows and in the intelligence world. Um, a lot of what needs to be done here will have to be done quietly without any discussion using sources and methods uh, that are available to our intelligence agencies uh, if we're going to be successful. Uh, that's the world these folks operate in. Gentlemen, that was the Vice President of the United States openly encouraging what he calls working on the dark side. How are professional psychologists to react when the Vice President of the United States says that? Well, Richard, I can tell you how the American Psychological Association reacted. Um, when there were questions raised uh, by virtue of memos written by the Office of Legal Counsel that appeared to give a very broad definition of what constituted torture, the American Psychological Association said, when we say torture, we mean this. And we talked very specifically about waterboarding, sexual humiliation, the use of phobias, mock executions. And when we said, the American Psychological Association, when we say torture is prohibited, we are speaking about these specific techniques. So we were very specific in terms of what psychologists are prohibited from doing. Well, actually, you know, uh, Stephen Benke has recommended that people take a look at the history of the American Psychological Association uh, and their uh, resolutions on these issues. And I probably am one of the few who has taken that up uh, in some great detail. And the resolution that, uh, that Stephen is referring to right now was only passed under extraordinary pressure from those of us fighting the APA in 2007. But way back in 2004, the International Committee of the Red Cross came out with their report about, well, actually it was leaked to the press, their report was leaked that said that health professionals at Guantanamo were uh, implementing, and I quote, an intentional system of cruel, unusual, and degrading treatment and a form of torture. And they said it was a flagrant violation of medical ethics. And so many of us called for investigations then in 2004. What the American Psychological Association did was created a task force uh, on psychology and ethics, psychology, psychological ethics and national security, the PENS task force. And who did they put on that task force but psychologists who were involved in the very commands at Guantanamo Bay that the International Committee of the Red Cross was talking about. So they put uh, Colonel Larry James, who was the, the chief psychologist of uh, the Joint Intelligence Group and the head of the psychological advisors to interrogations at Guantanamo during the period the International Committee of the Red Cross was talking about. They put Morgan Banks, Colonel Morgan Banks, who trained the interrogators at Guantanamo in enhanced interrogation techniques. They put others from the CIA counterintelligence group. They put six military or CIA 
um, psychologists who were involved directly with military or CIA uh, interrogation practices uh, or research on the committee. And what was that committee to do? To determine the APA ethical policy on these practices of interrogation. Well, and that was that, that prior to 2007 when the... Yes, it was. That was in 2005. Well, let, let me interrupt you with a question here, please, uh, uh, Stephen Reisner. Mm -hmm. I, you heard me say earlier in the program that, you know, we, we may have screwed up when we, when we uh, declared our independence and, and built our constitution with regard to people of color and, and women. But we did go on to rectify that in the Civil War, and we did go on to, to rectify that in the early 20th century. And so we corrected those errors. It sounds like the American Psychological Association, where it might have done, quote, the wrong thing earlier on, did correct the, er the errors, even if it took a lot of work, and sometimes it does, what would you like the APA? You know, what would you uh, like? What would you like to have done now? What What would you like to see now that the the actual ethics standards have changed and well, corrected? I, what What What's next? Should there be accountability investigation? What are you asking for? Well, I think that there are a number of things that Please. need to be changed with the APA, and I, I'm looking forward to to working with the APA to to, to help institute these these changes. The first, of course, is. Uh, questions of accountability, because the very psychologists who are involved in those commands uh, are still very are, are still being given uh, 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 awards by the American Psychological Association. There's the cases against them; ethical cases are not being investigated in a timely manner. Um, and the APA loves you know the APA likes to, to argue as if this is the past, but uh, so far no one within the APA has been held accountable. And one of the reasons that it's hard to hold people accountable within the APA is because we don't understand how it happened that, for example, the ethics code was changed to permit uh, military psychologists to follow law when it conflicts with ethics, how the ethics code was changed uh, to abandon the Nuremberg principle that you don't do experiments on people without their informed consent, how the, you know, what, how the ethics code was changed, A. B, how people involved in these interrogation commands, in the intelligence commands involved in the interrogations, were continuously given the power to determine APA policy on the ethics of the interrogations. Um, Those are so great questions. Let's ask Stephen Benke, your head of ethics for the American Psychological Association. Stephen Benke, are you, are you policing your own organization? Are you doing a good job? Let's hear from you. Well, uh, absolutely we are. Now, Stephen has made a number of points, so if I can simply go through them one by one, I think it'll be very helpful uh, to the listeners. In terms of looking at the composition of the task force, I think one of the key aspects of this history is what you see when the United States was developing interrogation policy, and you played a clip of the president and the vice president. There were individuals who used phrases such as, we have to take the gloves off now. It's time to get tough. Now, within the community of individuals who were experienced interrogators, there was another voice saying, no, that's not the way to do that. It's unethical. It's illegal, and it's counterproductive. If you take a look at the individuals who were on the task force that Stephen mentioned, Stephen mentioned two people. I'll just take one of those names, uh, Morgan Banks. If you take a look at uh, Senator Levin's Senate Armed Service Committee report, what you see is Morgan Banks at the time saying, don't use these techniques. They're illegal and they will cause you far greater problems uh, than you can imagine. Now, that is his contemporaneous word saying, don't do this. It's a bad idea, and it's illegal. So uh, I think that highlights how even within the, the world, the community of professional interrogators, many of them were objecting and objecting strenuously to the philosophy of interrogation that was being put forth by the president and the vice president. Actually, if I could finish, Stephen, you made a number of okay. points. So if Go I ahead. could finish. Uh, so Thank you. I think that would be 
that would be my first point. Now, my second point was that the ethics code was changed uh, when we last revised the ethics code. Now, that was in uh, uh, 2000, uh, actually a 2002. The language um, about conflicts between ethics and law said that if a conflict between ethics and law arose, a psychologist would make known the conflict, would try to resolve the conflict, and if the conflict was unresolvable, the psychologist may follow the law regulations or other governing legal authority. Now, what that meant is that it was in the psychologist's discretion either to engage in civil disobedience or to follow the law. That language was drafted in the fall of 2000, before the events of September 11th, before the war on terror. That was drafted in response to a concern among forensic psychologists that they were being required to hand over confidential information in legal proceedings. It had nothing to do with interrogation. It had nothing to do with the war on terror. It was drafted a year before 2001. So what happened is that language was drafted. It was adopted when the code was adopted. And then as time went on, people looked at that language and saw that it could be used uh, in a way that it was very different than it had ever been intended. The APA embarked then on the process of amending that section of the code, which APA has now done. In other words, what you're saying is when that was written, there was no expectation that the government would then expand the definition of torture so that psychologists would be trapped in their own law inadvertently. Absolutely. The language was written in the fall of 2000 before any of this was in anyone's mind. And it's one of those unintended consequences where you write language to address one issue and then several years down the line, uh, you see that it can be read in a very different way. And at that point, APA said, we need to change this. And APA went about amending the code, which has now happened. Of course, it, it doesn't get us away from the question that Stephen Reisner is, is raising, which is, how did it come about, even with such things as the government changing the language to call it enhanced interrogation or call it anything else, how did it come about that that licensed civil uh, a, a civil living, living professionals then went on to actually engage in this behavior rather than you know questioning it to the extent of refusal? And, and uh, that's an step, interesting ethical question, isn't it? it? It's a key ethical question, and and let's take it a little bit further. The the idea, yes, the ethics code has been changed, and it may have started being changed before September 11th, but it was changed in very specific ways to weaken its ethical standards so that you could follow the law over ethics, so that you didn't have to get informed consent when you did research, and a number of ways created a, uh, an atmosphere where ethics was now becoming beholden to law and government regulation. But I want to get back to the question of Morgan Banks and his... Well, before you do, you said something so important there that I've got to underline it. I must underline it, which is that ethics became subservient to the law. And and that is very important because when ethics become, in my understanding, and you both please correct me as ethicists, but when ethics become subservient to the law, is that not a step towards tyranny of some sort? The tyranny of the law itself? Richard, I would would agree with that completely, but I think we need to be very clear about what APA did. When APA's ethics code was written, it said that the, the discretion about whether to follow the law or whether to engage in civil disobedience, that was going to be vested in the individual psychologist. So that psychologist would look at a situation and say, okay, is this a time when I am going to engage in civil disobedience, when I am going to be willing, for example, uh, to go to jail, or is this a time when I may follow the law? Now, again, that change came in the context of an entirely different issue, and that was psychologists being 
faced with a court order to hand over confidential Understood. information Understood. in a legal proceeding. A question for both of you. Did any of the psychologists who engaged or, you know, were, were consultants to the interrogations, were they all volunteers or were any of them, uh, were they mandated, were they dra- told that this is something they must do? That's an important question because I'd like to know whether any of them you know, were not volunteers, were told to do it, and then if so, how many of those refused, and do we have any cases of that? Well, and- I don't know of a case where, psych- where psychologists um, uh, went, I, I, where, psych- where, well, let me see. The psychologists in general and the military is a, are a volunteer force. The, if you look at the program of uh, enhanced interrogation and how widespread it is, and you look at the number of interrogators who have come out since and regretted what they've done and gone public uh, for their part in the enhanced interrogation uh, techniques and program. I have yet to hear a single psychologist go public and say, I was part of this, and I regret it, and I, uh, and I made these moves to stop it. And uh, and that was and one of the problems with uh, what Stephen Benke suggested about changing ethics from a professional standard to an individual standard is that it makes it much harder for psychologists to say no if it is left up to the individual and they don't have the full support of their professional organization. Well, of course. I mean, that's like leaving it to the man in the field rather than what you said before about training him in the coolness uh, of of military training rather than making a decision in the field. But excuse me, we're going to take a call here because I promised. uh, Let's take that call, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi, Dr. Miller. Jeff Wright on the Mendocino Coast. Welcome. Um, I have heard a Freudian slip, or in this case, I think a Freudian slam dunk, that you, Dr. Miller, did this morning. I've heard Amy Goodman do it. I've heard it across the board. And I think it relates all the way back to corporations pressuring for profits uh, in order to further the war machine in their political agenda. That Freudian slip is where people start to say company, and they say country, uh, and they correct themselves in mid, or they they want to say company, and they say and they uh, they start to say country, and they mean company. And it seems that the lines have been so blurred between those uh, corporations and their agendas. You look at BP as an example in our country right now, and people uh, can't tell the difference, and the ethics get blurred. So the Hippocratic oath goes from do no harm to the hypocritic oath unless it's somebody who we can subjugate for profit or for political agenda. I, I think that's a great comment. And, and by the way, I, I don't know whether I meant it as a slip or actually I actually meant it, but I have very deep concerns about the influence of corporations on our government and on the, fa- the recent Supreme Court decision which gave citizenship to corporations. And I would like to make that a topic uh, of, of a future program. Uh, right now we're going to take one more call, if I may. Uh, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Great show. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I feel that this issue is largely window dressing. We operate on two tracks. One track being how we'd like to be treated if we were captured or being tortured, and the other what we're actually going to do when we feel threatened. We've got a long history of this. Nuremberg trials are going on while we're doing the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. We've got, I was in graduate school in Pennsylvania during the Rwanda genocide. And I was a member of the Jewish Community Center, and we'd go down there and start talking about what was going on. But then as soon as a couple infamous cases came up on torture of Palestinians that were in Israeli um, captivity, all of a sudden it was totally changed based on the personal uh, feeling of buy-in and threat. The ticking bomb argument would immediately come up, and it seems like these rules we're making and everything else, we really don't intend them for ourselves in a dangerous situation. We intend them for the person that has our people, and we don't want them to do it. Thank you very much. Gentlemen, what's your response to that last uh, uh, caller? I I, I would say I think it's a wonderful point, and I'm going to get back to Stephen Reisner's first point about the importance of making rules when there are cool times and level heads. 
uh, because we don't want precisely the dichotomy that this uh, gentleman is raising. It's how would we like to be treated as opposed to uh, how would we treat someone else in captivity when they have something that we believe they want. We don't want that kind of differential, and that's why we want to have clear rules that we train people well in, uh, again, for, uh, for exactly the reasons that uh, Steven Reisner uh, started us off on the show talking about. And I, I would just say that the question that, you know, the, the, the caller who spoke about uh, company versus country, I think that that does raise a very essential issue of who's making the rules even when cool heads are, are, are applying. Um, are the people who are making the rules, do they have a vested interest? Or are they independent uh, ethicists and thinkers? Um, I, I'm afraid to say that I reason I think that there needs to be an investigation of the American Psychological Association is because the rules were made by people who had clear conflicts of interest, people who were in the military, people who worked for corporations that uh, were that had contracts with the military, that the APAs uh, uh, work together with uh, with this. Uh, this the intelligence agencies in the military was not considered a conflict of interest in making some of these decisions. When the uh, so so I agree, cool heads but independent heads. Cool but independent heads, gentlemen. I'm sorry, I have to interrupt you, Dr. Stephen Benke, Dr. Stephen Reisner. Thank you, deeply thank you for appearing with us today. I hope you'll come back. This is a topic that warrants a lot more discussion, listeners. In 2006, a survey by the Scripps Center at Ohio University pointed out, actually brought to us, that 66% of Americans who identified themselves as strongly Republicans supported torture. 24% of those who identified themselves uh, as strongly as Democratic who supported torture. In a 2005 U.S. survey, 72% of American Catholics supported the use of torture in some circumstances compared to 51% of secularists. And finally, a Pew survey in 2009 found that religiously unaffiliated are the least unaffiliated are the least likely to support torture, whereas a person claimed to attend church is more likely by 62% to support torture. This is a topic for us to continue in the future. It's important to the character of the American citizens. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is contributed to by our staff, our producer Ron Rogers, and our engineer Mike DeLora. Join me in exactly two weeks at this time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.